This is Broken Pledge, a special project of the Columbus Dispatch. It is a story about fraternity hazing, the life and death of Colin Wyant, Stone Foltz, and a Greek life tradition that has left nearly 100 students dead since 2000. I am Sheridan Hendricks. This is the ninth and final chapter of Broken Pledge. It's been nearly two years since we at the Columbus Dispatch first introduced you to the Wyant family. Kathleen and Wade Wyant, alongside their children, Austin, Olivia, Aiden, and Ava, were still mourning the loss of their middle son, 18-year-old Colin. Colin, an enthusiastic honorable student at Ohio University with a flair for leadership, had just started his freshman year. A month into the semester, Colin decided to join the Sigma Pi fraternity, but he never made it to the end of the pledging process. In November 2018, Colin died after collapsing in the fraternity's unofficial off-campus house. The dispatch spent a year investigating how Colin died and what happened in the aftermath. We interviewed dozens of people, reviewed court records, police reports, recordings of disciplinary hearings to illuminate the dangers of hazing and the secrecy that surrounds it. We talked to the Wyants about the pain, anger, and remorse they felt in the wake of Colin's death. This spring, we shared an update on the Wyants' tireless journey to combat hazing and lobby for a law that they hoped would spare other families their enduring pain. As their anti-hazing bill languished at the State House, another Central Ohio family experienced the Wyants' same fate. Stone Foltz, a 20-year-old sophomore at Bowling Green State University, had attended a Big Brother event held by the fraternity he was rushing, Pi Kappa Alpha International. He later died of fatal alcohol intoxication after a fraternity member left Stone inebriated and alone in his apartment. In the midst of their grief, Stone's parents, Sherry and Corey, called on university leaders and elected officials to make hazing a felony and hold those who haze accountable for their actions. Since our last episode, lawmakers did just that. On July 1st, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine signed Collins Law, Ohio's Anti-Hazing Act, into law. It had unanimously passed in both the Ohio House and Senate in the weeks prior. I can say from my wife Fran and my experience, there's nothing, nothing worse than losing a child. We simply in Ohio cannot tolerate hazing. And we're saying with this bill that we will not tolerate hazing. This is really a question of culture. And for decades, the culture of hazing has been accepted as something that is tolerated. This bill says that going forward, hazing in the state of Ohio is simply not tolerated. The new law made Ohio the 11th U.S. state to make hazing a felony. It also created harsher penalties for hazing, a statewide curriculum for college students about hazing, and more transparency at the university level. Passing Collins Law was a long-fought triumph. And yet, for the Wyants, the Foltzes, and the thousands of others who endure the physical and emotional trauma of hazing each year, the story didn't end with the passage of a new law. In many ways, it's just the beginning. So, instead of hearing from us about everything that's happened in the last few months, we want to do something a little different. We want you to hear from the mothers themselves, from Kathleen and Sherry, about their loss and grief, their relationship, what gets them through the day, 
and what's next in their fight against hazing. Kathleen had been fighting against hazing for well over two years when her biggest fear came true. Oh my God. It was, it was so awful. It was unbelievable. I right away wanted to find out who that family was and reach out to them. That was my first thought. And I just kept saying that to everyone. Like, I can't stop thinking about his mom. And I just thought, oh my God, this again. This can't keep happening, and it's going to keep happening unless we make significant, dramatic changes. And our whole family felt, felt that loss. I mean, that's all we kept talking about was Stone's family. Stone, and what was he like? It was, it was just, I mean, our heart just went out to them and still does. The two mothers bonded in their grief and knew they had to work together. The pandemic forced them to meet virtually rather than in person. You know, this past spring, I can't point to a specific day. It was just the entire spring was all about Collins Law and would it get through. And, you know, every day I was learning more and more about the legislative process because this is not what I do by trade, right? Never thought I'd find myself in this position. And just learning that if we did not have it to the governor's desk by the end of June that they'd be breaking for summer session and it would be reintroduced in the fall or picked up again in the fall. And then even if it got through, it's 90 days that it goes into effect from the time it passes. So I felt like we were under the gun just to get it to the governor's desk by the end of June so it could be in place this fall when the kids went off to school. And that's the first time we had met in person. However, was it maybe a month, a couple weeks? After we did a Zoom call with Wade and Kathleen, and that was the first time I think we talked for a couple hours. Yeah, that was like a mo- about a month after Stone passed. I know that Corey and I were both very nervous, but we also wanted to reach out and and get to know Kathleen and Wade because they we knew they could relate and hopefully give us you know pointers on how to. To, to get through this. And, you know, I called her many times and asking her, you know, we have the, the arraignments coming up. How can I get through this? Do you have any advice? And she provided all that information for me. When we did the, the call, it was hard because it set in that, you know, we both have young adults that passed away the same way. Um, but we shared good stories as well, and we talked a little bit about Colin and Stone and what they were like. Found out a lot that they are a lot alike. They both love basketball, shoes, Kobe Bryant. So that was really good, and, and Wade and Corey seemed to connect really well. So it was a good moment, and we enjoyed it very much talking to them. Yeah, I remember before that Zoom call talking to Wade, trying to figure out, you know, what we wanted to talk to them about and what we wanted to accomplish, what was our end in mind for that call. And I remember us saying, you know, we would want to give them anything we can that we wish we would have known two and a half years ago. Like we want to think of everything that would have been helpful to know. So that was really important to us. And at the same time, not mislead them 
not make them think, oh, it's, it's not that bad, right? Because it's awful. It's hell. And we didn't want to mislead them. And we wanted to make sure that we were giving them hope, which, you know, is the most important thing. And there is hope in this because, you know, you do continue to heal and you, you do move forward, even on the days you don't want to, you do. And so I wanted to make sure that they knew that. The moms were racing against the clock this past spring, determined to get new hazing law sent to the governor's desk by midsummer. They feared someone else might die if the law wasn't in place before another Greek life pledging season this fall. You know, I felt this big push of energy, like, here we go again, we're going to start it again. And I felt very strong at that point that, you know, we had gone through the November, December where it died in committee and had a couple months for a breather. When it didn't pass in the General Assembly, the previous General Assembly, I had said, it is not a matter of if this will pass, but when. And I didn't know how long it would take. I mean, I, I kept hearing from legislators, sometimes it takes, you know, years, it could take five years. So then in February, when we were getting ready to reintroduce it, I felt this huge push like, okay, we're ready, we're, we're going to go do this. So I felt a surge of energy. And at the same time, I thought, cautiously kept telling myself, this could be several more years, I could be doing this over and over again. So I very much, you know, was aware that this, this might not be the one that goes the time that it goes through, but that that was okay. I was going to just keep doing this over and over and over again till it, till it did. On July 1st, when the governor signed the hazing bill into law, the mothers were overwhelmed with emotion, but not all of it was joy or a sense of achievement. Their losses were magnified that day, and so was the price they had to pay to get there. So literally minutes before... We said we weren't going to speak, and Kathleen came up to me and said, I really think you should, should get up there and say something, especially regarding the IUC and working with them on the principles. So, of course, Corey's like, you can do it. <laughs> and so everything that I said up there was last minute, and it was from the heart. And up to that point, you know, it's just been a whirlwind of emotions. And, you know, like I said, we really have not had time to grieve. So everything that came out of my mouth was from the heart. And, you know, obviously it goes beyond saying I, I didn't want to be there. If I could get stoned back, I would do everything in my power. But obviously that's not going to happen. So we just have to look at the future and what we can continue to do. Well, I mean, so many emotions. You know, I, we were so excited for that day. I was so relieved when it, it got voted through. So excited going into that day. And that day was a surprising range of emotion. You know, when the governor actually signed it, which was, you know, so interesting to watch this whole process. And there are like 30 pens there and one stroke for, with each pen because there were so many people involved, right? We had so many legislators and lobbyists and families involved. But as he was signing it, it was not the feelings I thought I would have. It was incredibly painful. And all I kept thinking was, you know, the price tag for Colin's law was Colin. That was the price tag. If he didn't die, I wouldn't be here today. My kids wouldn't be here. We, none of, you know, if Stone didn't die, the Fultzes wouldn't be here. Like, they were the price tag. So that was so painful, so much. I, I thought it would be a very joyful moment when he was signing, but it, it was very hard for me thinking about that. To those on the outside, the two women might seem the same. 
grieving mothers who bonded together to honor their sons and defend others against the same fate. But Sherry and Kathleen were in very different stages of their grief. Kathleen was nearly three years removed from Colin's death, a nationally recognized public speaker, and a staple at the State House. It had been a matter of months since Sherry said goodbye to Stone. She viewed herself still as just a mom. I guess the main thing is knowing that we're still in the beginning. You know, at the time, it's only four months. And the pain is real. The pain's never going to go away. And, and we realize that. And knowing that Kathleen has the same exact feelings as I have. All that other stuff, it doesn't matter. It's just, you know, it's hard. I didn't feel that way because, it, you know, Colin's law was never about Colin. It was too late for him. It was about all the other kids. And what, once Stone died, it became, you know, even that much more important to get it through. You know, right away from the get-go, Wade and I had just a very special feeling in our heart for Sherry and Corey. You know, you, you can't describe it to know that there are very few people that know this pain and that they know it exactly and precisely. They know our hearts and we know theirs. So that's a very unusual bond. And then just watching how they've moved through it. You know, I have the utmost respect for how they have moved through this with such grace and strength. Um, it really is inspiring to me. You know, at one point I had said that when Collins Law didn't pass last General Assembly, it was my greatest fear that there'd be another death in Ohio. And when Stone died, I felt guilty, responsible, like we let that family down that we didn't get this through. And Cherry reached out to me and said, I want you to know, I never want you to feel this way. And she said something, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that this was meant to be. It was meant to be. And that touched me so much because I've always felt that way about Colin's death, but I don't know if other parents feel that way. So when she said that too, I knew exactly what she meant and how she felt. Like, I don't want it this way. I have no choice in it. And I know it was also, it was meant to be. Although signing Collins Law was a momentous day, Kathleen and Sherry recognized there's still work to be done. Research shows that 1.5 million high school students are hazed each year, and more than half of all college students will experience some form of hazing in their time at school. Only 5% of hazing incidents are ever reported. Kathleen and Sherry are not ignorant to the fact that some students will continue to haze despite these new safeguards and laws. That's not stopping them from doing whatever they can do to convince them otherwise. I will say back in the beginning, I was getting a lot of messages, cards from people who have been hazed. I don't know if you received any, Kathleen, but it's just the number of people who told their story. I guess it hurts more to know that these stories are out there and that people are living with this trauma. And we need to get more people out there to speak about it, to understand it. Sherry understands that her journey to continue eradicating hazing is just the beginning. And the problem spans beyond college campuses. So again, it goes back to day one with the promise that we made to Stone. You know, after learning about Collins Law and it passing, we've always had that prevention we need to prevent it because I honestly think that these kids are 
who are hazing are being bullied in high school. And I also think that when they get to college, the events leading up to the big little night, they're being groomed and they don't even know it. If I thought that getting rid of the Greek organizations would wipe out hazing, I would say be done with them all now. Absolutely. But that's not going to get rid of hazing because hazing is not just in the Greek system. There's actually more hazing at the varsity level of athletics in college than there is even in the Greek life. And then you find it in the military organizations. You find it in um, marching bands. You find it widespread throughout organizations. So just getting rid of the Greek system is not going to wipe out hazing. The women have spoken in front of lawmakers, university administrators, students, and other members of the public about the dangers of hazing. But what would they say to a group of fraternity brothers who were plotting a hazing ritual? Well, first of all, I would share with them, you know, there's a risk management expert named Dr. Lori Hart who talks about the five assholes theory. And in that, what she's sharing is that in any organization where there's hazing, there are typically five people about, give or take, who are carrying on the hazing, who want the hazing, who are driving the hazing and pushing the hazing and conducting the hazing. Most of the other people in the organization either don't want anything to do with it or even bothered by it. They don't like it. Those bystanders. Those bystanders is where the change is, right? We can't get change from those five assholes. But from the bystanders, they have all the power. They have all the power to end this and to change this because if they don't support what those five people are doing, the hazing's not going to take place. If they walk out, the hazing's not going to take place. So the power lies with them. You know, it's the idea of if you watch a blind man walk into a well, are you at fault for him drowning? Yes. Hell yes, you are. You absolutely are. So the bystanders really have the power and they need to understand that. If I walked into a room, that would be the first thing is, why are you guys doing this? Is this what you want to represent as part of an organization and doing these things to these individuals because you've planned it? Yes, obviously it's a culture change because they probably went through the same exact thing the year before. But I also think it goes back, you know, being able to walk in there and tell the bystanders, the ones being hazed, to walk away. I think the issue and the problem is, is that people don't realize that these individuals are being groomed and taking these acts prior to the hazing event or the event of the big little, whatever it might be, but they're being groomed. You know, Stone told me certain things that he had to do leading up to the big little night. Absolutely. I thought they were crazy and insane. And I told him that, but you know, he said, mom, every organization, every fraternity does this. I said, okay, well, you know, I don't think this is something that's good, and I don't think anything good's going to come out of it. But he also said that, you know, I've made a lot of friends. So it's building up to that brotherhood that when they get in that situation and being told you can't leave, that's where they don't have a choice. They know they're going to be you know, not able to join another fraternity. They're not going to be able to join another organization. So I think it goes before that. I don't think you can walk into a room and these kids are sitting there other than to say, stand up. You have a choice. Make the right decisions as far as helping your friends and walk out. 
If you've enjoyed this special project, please consider supporting investigative journalism like this by visiting dispatch.com slash subscribe now. Thank you for listening. Thank you.